Hi everybody and welcome to the South Summit podcast. South Summit is a platform that accelerates the global entrepreneurial community. And here's a space where we get to go deep with some of the thought leaders from that industry discussing the trends and the technology that are shaping our world today. I'm Liz Fleming and I'll be guiding you through some of these conversations. Very excited for you to join us. Today we are with Jack Hittery, CEO at Sandbox AQ, one of the leading minds in artificial intelligence and quantum computing. He has literally written the book. We are so excited to have him here with so much talk going on about artificial intelligence. We thought we would bring you one of the world's leading gurus in this space. And kindly facilitated by our own Elena Diaz Fuentes from the South Summit family. Here you go. Welcome to South Summit Podcast. This is your host, Helena Diaz-Fuentes, or Helen Ten Fountains in English, if you wish. And along with the co-founder of Cloud District and our producer, Jaime Serrano, we are thrilled to chat with our next guest. He is the CEO of Sandbox AQ, Mr. Jack Hidery. Welcome. How are you? Hola, Helena. Great to see you. Good to see you too, Jack. We have a few questions for you because this is a big drama now about... Generative AI. What is all this drama about? And is it really an ethics issue? Great question, Helena. So it's very exciting times right now. We hear about generative AI. People are using it. This overnight success, though, has 30 years of history behind it. Uh, many, many pioneers, Jeff Hinton, Yeshua Bengio, Jan LeCun, many, many people behind it for decades, building up to this point. And one of the key uh, step forward that we see, saw just in the last few years is the chips. The chips, like they call GPUs, uh, graphics processing units, uh, they allow us to model bigger and bigger brain-like programs, these neural networks, these AI networks. And these networks are modeled after our own brain. Our own brain is works in a somewhat similar way. And these GPUs from the G, the graphics, came actually from video games. So every time you see a teenager playing video games, thank them because they're responsible for the chips that then led to this AI revolution. And we're now seeing the ability to take huge amounts of, say, text, feed it into the AI, and the AI can now uh, write essays and write all kinds of things that make some sense, although it still hallucinates a lot as well. And when we say hallucination, what we mean is that it also has read a lot of novels. It's read a lot of crazy stuff on the internet, too. And therefore, sometimes it comes out with wild ideas. Recently, they asked an AI, what is the population of Mars, the planet of Mars? And uh, one AI said two billion people because it read a science fiction story that there's two billion people living on Mars. So we do want, the first ethical issue is we have to worry about the hallucination because if we're going to use AI in a medical context, in the context of helping a doctor, a physician, a nurse, helping them to get to an answer, a diagnosis or a treatment uh, for a patient, we have to make sure we're not using hallucination, right? So there's a certain amount of responsible use of, of the AI there. Another thing I would point to is um, my main concern is about what I call adolescent AI. In other words, I'm less concerned about Terminator and AI taking over and waking up suddenly in a dystopian future. I am more worried, more worried about using AI too early 
in big roles of responsibility. I call it adolescent technology because when we know teenagers, for example, uh, they start driving in different countries at age 15, 16, 17. This is the most dangerous time of driving in your life. It's when you've got a license, so we give you the responsibility of this vehicle, this powerful vehicle, but you really have no experience uh, doing so, and it's a very dangerous period, and unfortunately, many young people get hurt during that period driving. This is where we see ourselves right now in AI. It's still very, very adolescent, and unfortunately, due to cost-cutting pressure and other pressures, we're going to see hospitals and companies and energy grids and all kinds of companies out there and organizations and governments start to use this AI too early because they want to cut costs, they want to save, they want to uh, have increased productivity. And I appreciate that, but we have to be careful before we give the AI too much responsibility because it's not ready yet. Not because it's going to take over something, but because it simply doesn't know all the edge cases. It can handle things very well in the middle, in the usual case, but it does not do well in the edge cases. And so we have to be worried about that. Um, this is my main concern right now in terms of an ethical use of AI. So, Jack, the ethical problem or dilemma is not coming from AI in itself, but from the use that us humans do of that AI. And how are we going to be able to control this? Well, exactly right. AI is such a tool. In fact, we cannot pause AI. There were some who said, let's pause AI. I disagree with that. We, we must move forward with AI because AI can save lives and will save lives. It will help us break through in terms of new treatments. It will help us break through in clean energy and clean technology to have less pollution, less environmental um, impact on the world uh, from humans. And so AI is a very powerful tool that we must use to improve the lives of people, but also the planet itself. So uh, the idea of pausing really doesn't make any sense. At the same time, we want to make sure that people understand what tool they're using. If I have someone new to a carpentry workshop and they're gonna use a new chainsaw, a very powerful tool, we must train them in this tool. Same thing like that. A chainsaw could be used for very positive things or you know, to make beautiful furniture and things like that, or it could be used in a negative way as well. So AI as a tool is going to move forward. The chips are getting better and better. These GPUs, that's, the, that's what's driving this success right now. Why did it happen just in the last 18 months? What is this explosion that we see? It's because the chips are able to model billions and billions and billions of neurons, artificial neurons, not actual neurons in our brain, but the artificial version of a neuron. And because we got to a certain emergent point, what emerged was better AI. We see it first in text, we see it in images, now we're starting to see it in video, where you can ask it for, to supply a video. And one of the most exciting things for me about the new AI is for education. We have failed, we have failed school children around the world. If you look at the test scores in math, in science, in writing, in grammar, in, in all kinds of areas around the world, we are not doing well. And what we try to do then in most countries, uh, including the U.S., is we try to make it up in the university system. This does not really work. It does not scale. K through 12 is failing in so many countries. AI can deliver personalized education. 
One of the problems in education is that if you go into any classroom in the world, we're teaching to the median, to the middle. But no kid is in the middle. Some kids are need more help. They're a little behind. Some kids are advanced. They are bored now in the classroom. So actually, teaching to the middle doesn't work. What we want to do is have an AI that hears and listens to that child and understands, do they like more audio, more video, more text? What is their mode of learning? How do they want to interact with the educational material? That can be customized to the child. We still need schools. We still need teachers. This does not replace the teacher. We want teachers to embrace this. When AI started exploding, I called many, many high schools uh, in the U.S. in particular where we do uh, support them, and I said, please, don't do the reflex motion of banning this AI. And you know some schools did ban AI. But the schools I spoke to, I said, please embrace it. This is a tool for education. This is a tool that we can lift up our children. So this, to me, is one of the big promises of this new AI. Good. Jack, great news. I mean, you are... There's still hope, you're optimistic. This drama around it is mainly due to this uh, explosion you were mentioning and also about a bit of uh, lack of information from yeah. people, but with time, things will settle. In that sense, uh, I have in front of me here this uh, your book, Quantum Computing. Very light reading. This is for the beach. An Applied Approach by Jack Hidery. My God, I'm a lawyer by profession, and there's so many uh, numbers. And But still, he told me, uh, Jack, the chapter two on yes. the history, it's, it's quite uh, accessible. But what is the whole quantum computing for, for a lot of our listeners who might not know really uh, the basics? What is, what is it about quantum computing uh, that we should care about, the, the yeah. general public? Yeah, great question. So you mentioned you're a lawyer, and, in, and, and lawyers deal with laws, and they help write laws if they're in parliament, or they help interpret the laws or implement the laws. Well, it turns out that our world, nature itself, also has a set of laws. These laws are governed by quantum physics. That is the fundamental law of the universe, is quantum physics. At the base of everything, at the base of the chairs we're sitting on, and this table, and this microphone, and our bodies, and the molecules in our bodies, and our eyes, and the retina, all that is ultimately governed by quantum mechanics. So these are a set of laws, and the good news is, 100 years ago, a number of very brilliant people, mainly here in Europe, um, discovered these laws. And they gave these laws to us. Uh, Einstein, Dirac, Bohr, Schrodinger, Heisenberg. These people came up with it, and un we understood from them the laws of the universe itself, quantum physics itself. But we are now, Helena, this is what's exciting. We're the first generation of humans who can now start to compute with these laws, who can start to understand nature and, in a scalable way, model and simulate these laws in a computer. Before we knew about it, but we didn't have the computing capacity. Just like in AI, we just talked about, we didn't have the computing capacity to get brain-like uh, performance in terms of language, right? The language coming out five, ten years ago, you could tell right away, that is a computer, right? That's not something that a human wrote. Now it's getting very human-like. Well. Now, in terms of the physics, the physics of the world, we can now start to simulate the world itself, understanding these, these laws. And what does that mean for us? It means that if we want to take a molecule and make that into a medicine, we want a treatment for cancer. Brain cancer, for example, is one of the harshest of cancers. We don't have good solutions for it. Very difficult. What if we want to take this molecule and say, will this be good in humans? Well, right now, the method we do now is that we try it, we develop it in the lab for 10, 15 years, then we take it into human trials. 80% failure. 
80% failure at human trials. How can we do better? We can do better by simulating that molecule in a large computer. Simulating it billions of times and changing it each time a little bit. And when we change a little bit, we can see, Helena, is that a better molecule or worse molecule that will hit the brain cancer? And by doing so, we can reduce the risk going into clinical trials. Before it hits the first human, we can understand, is this a molecule that has a good chance of succeeding? So that is just one example of how we can use the quantum laws of our world in order to save lives and impact uh, this world. Wow, Jack, you are so enthusiastic, so passionate, so, it's so exciting. You had me at quantum, to be honest. Excellent. But, uh, uh, we are at South Summit, uh, the soul and the heart of the summit. Obviously, investors and people like you, you are very important. That's why you're here with us. And we consider you a friend now, and we hope you come every year. But the soul, the beginning was uh, the entrepreneurs. There's 100 entrepreneurs here, the finalists, but there's a lot of other entrepreneurs that are probably listening or potential entrepreneurs. In this sense, Jack, how could we transmit this passion, which just by listening to you, but what could you tell them in terms of opportunities in this in this sector, in this space of, of quantum, quantum computing? What would you give them as a, opportunities? What do you need other entrepreneurs to, to do? Well, I think right now it's not only entrepreneurs, absolutely entrepreneurs, but also partnership with the universities, partnership with governments. We need, Helena, all the stakeholders to come together. This is going to be multifaceted if we're going to succeed in doing this because the universities uh, here in Spain, for example, we, Sandbox AQ, partner with University of Malaga, University of Barcelona. We have multiple universities we partner to train the master students, the PhDs, the postdocs, train them in these tools and technologies of AI and quantum so they can be join companies uh, that entrepreneurs can start in the next five or 10 years. We must invest in the university. Number two, we must have good policy from the government. We must have governments around the world, not just here in Spain, but everywhere, have pro uh, have policies that really support these kinds of technologies that invest in them. Uh, I just came from Israel, from Tel Aviv, uh, where they have put in place in the last three years uh, policies and efforts and programs to encourage more entrepreneurship. And in fact, uh, 20 new companies got funded there by venture capital in the AI and quantum space just in the last year. So we're starting to see the fruits of this in big countries uh, like the US, but also European countries. Uh, there's the EU project right now, the quantum flagship project in EU is very strong. We have to support it. We want to continue that program in the EU and see it grow and flourish. And then of course the entrepreneurs themselves um, this is the time as an entrepreneur to think about deeper tech. It doesn't have to be quantum. It could be in biology. It could be in chemistry. It could be in different areas. Uh, the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s were more about productivity tech, ad tech, lots of interesting things, all good, all valuable, all necessary. This is the era now of deep tech. This is a time when venture capitalists, big growth capital funds, they're looking for deeper moats around the castle, deeper impact on the world. People want to just not have a successful company. They want to have successful impact on our world, be it the environment, be it clean energy, be it in biology and medicine, uh, be it in logistics, uh, be it in reducing the plastic that we put into the ocean. These are all big opportunities that we have right now. Wow, I mean, uh, entrepreneurs around the world, there you have it, yeah, all that, all that um, range of possibities. This is fascinating, uh, Jack, but obviously 
we understand and you, this is the reason we brought you here, so you can communicate all that passion and all those opportunities and you know, take us a bit more in depth into the quantum computing world. But what do you expect from South Summit? Why are you here? I mean, we know you're here, we wanted you here, but why did you come? What do you expect? And as a part of the family, what would you like to take back home to the US or to London? Well, one reason I'm here is I'm very concerned about the growing tech divide. We talked about the digital divide 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, many people around the world identified that if you don't have a smartphone, if you didn't have the ability to access broadband internet, you were locked out of getting great education online, of being able to sell your goods online on e-commerce, on sites like Etsy or places like that where you can be an artisan, create stuff and sell it in the global uh, world. And even now, although it is 8 billion people, we just passed 8 billion people in the world just uh, seven months ago, there's still 3 billion people that are not yet part of this uh, of this revolution. But here's the good news. On the digital divide, they're joining at the rate of about 250 million people per quarter, per three months. Every three months, about 250 million people who never were on the web, who never had apps, who never were part of selling stuff into e-commerce, increasing their income of their household, uh, for their family. Now they are joining because Mobile phones got cheap, uh, apps got cheaper, you know, all this ecosystem really started delivering. So in the next three, four years, we'll close the digital divide. However, what I'm concerned about now is the deep tech divide, AI and quantum as two examples of that. We see the haves and we see the have-nots. We see countries uh, here in Europe and, and US and others, the haves, they have quantum programs, they have quantum flagships, they have program, you know, uh, university programs, and, and we see the have-nots. So for example, in the Global South, right, we are working with um, uh, you know, Quantum South, which is based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as an example, uh, looking at how do we encourage more and more university students to, f to follow AI and quantum you know, in Brazil, as one example. Um, my own family, my mom comes from Colombia. Um, we're, we're trying to reach out to more and more countries to say, join us in this revolution. Join in the deep tech revolution. How do we bridge this gap? That is what concerns me. That's one reason I was attracted to South Summit, because South Summit is not just about sitting here in Madrid. It is also about bringing a larger community from the global south. You said it all. We're going to have to give you a, a salary and a job here at South Summit uh, next year. Oh, oh my God, you, if you wish to change careers, you could become a fantastic <laughs> politician. You know, don't, don't. I have a, I have a good job right now. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> anyway, Jack, I'm going to pass you through uh, to uh, Jaime, our sure. producer, because he has a couple of uh, surprise questions. Surprise questions. Jack, don't, you don't have to worry. So the first thing we want to, to do with this programs is to connect each other, right? And yesterday we had the privilege to, to speak with Andrew Winston, author of Net Positive, and we asked him to, to pass along a question for our next guest, which happens to be you. I'm going to ask you to, to also create a question for the next guest, whom you never know who is. But uh, you can start thinking about it. In the meantime, uh, I'll read you Andrew's question, which happens to perfectly match with what you were mentioning about the divides, because Andrew was talking about what things divide us as a species, not in terms of the technological divide, but uh, a general divide. Um, so I guess the question is, what gives you hope uh, and what do you think 
we and you can do to bridge those divides and come back uh, from the brink of having these huge divisions. That's a great in, question. In I know Andrew. And, he's an excellent, uh, excellent person. I'm so glad he's also here at at the summit. He's been a leader in terms of clean tech, clean energy, and environmental policy. So very happy to receive this question. And as we were talking about Helena and Jaime, this is um, a key question right now. The good news is that because finally we are closing the digital divide, uh, as I mentioned, with cheaper mobile phones, with the ability for people to access the kind of information, videos from South Summit now can be seen in the next few years by this three billion people that we were just referring to before. Um, that number, by the way, just a few years ago was five billion people, not yet on. But again, we've made more progress. We're making accelerating progress bringing the last few billion uh, in, and that's critical. Um, and when people join in uh, and connect to the you know, broadband internet or 5G, 4G even uh, internet, they get access to many services, e-commerce. They can lift themselves up in terms of their income, in terms of their education, health information for maternity. If a woman is pregnant, she wants information about managing the pregnancy. That information now can come to her. And also, because of AI, we can now do that in every language, right? Before, it was laborious to get it into all the languages. Now, part of the divide that's being bridged now is language. We can now uh, get past that because of how good AI is at translation. So I would say critical to this whole ballgame is the fact of bringing the rest of the world with us. Uh, number two, educational programs driven by AI. There is no way to train millions and millions of people in time to become professors and teachers in all the schools we need to over the world. We need to empower the current professors, the current teachers, with AI tools in order to be able to help their students ramp up very quickly in these difficult uh, subjects. Again, it might seem when you open a book like this that it's got a lot of math, but again, when you put that all aside, these are very simple, straightforward laws, just like a lawyer would deal with in the in La Ley de España or whatever country uh, we're in. Um, these are laws that we can know and understand, and we can drive massive change. AI itself, it's not that hard to learn. We think of it right now maybe sometimes as a magical kind of thing that came to us from a genie out of a bottle. But in fact, these are very straightforward, simple rules that were applied many, many times over and emerges from that very, very powerful things. We want to make sure that every child around the world has that access, not only to use AI, be a consumer of it, but to be a producer to actually contribute, to be a creator. The creative revolution has still not happened. Tim Berners-Lee, who started the web in 1991, had a vision. He had a vision, Helena and Jaime, not of just people consuming information on the web, but people creating information. And in fact, less than 1%, though, create the information for the 99%. That is, unfortunately, the ratio we have now. We're creating content right now. That's wonderful. But we should have kids in Colombia being, you know, creating more content that we will listen to, right? And so it's more also about listening, not just also sending information. And how can we get that two-way dialogue going? So this is critical. If we want to have a revolution in the environment, for example, that Andrew and I share a passion for, if we want to, uh, you know, have better solar panels, better battery chemistry, we need to engage a wider set of people. That's where the creativity will come from. Well. Thank you, Jack.
Um, sure, who's the speaker? Create a question for us. Oh, we don't know. That's, that is the tough uh, part. Uh, okay. So it has to okay. be <laughs> quite wide on any topic. Okay. Um, go ahead or just uh, a challenge or mm. some, something that worries you, somebody to save the world. Let's see, let's see. This is a good, uh, a good challenge. It's a creative challenge. The question I would have really is about um, how do we interact with government specifically to help government understand the revolution that's happening. I think that um, most people in government have good intentions. They want to help their people. They want to see progress. Um, what we're seeing is a different divide, a divide where people who are in politics often do not have the technical background to see, understand fully what is happening. It's happening at such a quick rate. And it's very hard for them uh, to, to see what's happening, even not the politicians themselves, even if they have a senior staff person, right? So um, how do we engage government? How can we have a productive conversation, nonpartisan, across all different parties and sides? This is not a partisan issue. This is about engaging those who are in government now and also maybe those who want to go into government, who might be in policy uh, schools around the world. There's the Kennedy School in uh, in Harvard. There's schools here in Spain. There's policy schools around the world. How do we engage with current and future political leaders to engage them and say, hey, a revolution is happening. Please, your first instinct shouldn't be just to slap it down. Um, your first instinct could be, let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about it. Let's see how we can help the people with these technologies. That would be my challenge. Wow, that is a challenge. Interesting question, and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the answer to that one. Jack Hidery, it's been a real pleasure having you here at the South Summit podcast. With that Latin passion, you are part of the South, obviously. And you know that one South Summit, always South Summit. You are the best ambassador, part of the family. It was Gracias. lovely having you. We hope to see you around very soon. This is your home forever. Thank, Thank you. you, Jack. Thank you. Gracias. Bye. Thank bye. You. Wow, that's so inspirational just hearing the energy, the passion out of Jack Hidry and what he's building at Sandbox AQ. Incredible opportunity there for all the South Summit community to participate in this new AI revolution and quantum computing that's on the way. Stay tuned with us at the South Summit podcast if you want to go deeper with the thought leaders that are shaping our world today. Don't miss the rest of our episodes. And of course, stay tuned with us on our social media. We look forward to seeing you soon.